The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on this show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, a podcast that tells the stories of brain cancer warriors, clinicians, medical experts, and those in the grief and loss community. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. This season, you will hear unique brain cancer and grief and loss stories, as well as my own journey through grief and loss. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio, or Instagram and YouTube at Game on Glio Podcast. You can also visit and subscribe to our website at thegameonglioPodcast.com for our blog, insights, clinical trials, and guest snapshots. Season three of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gametile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York. Learn more at bcbswny.com and by Mimivax LLC. Learn more at Mimivax.com. Somebody asked me recently, what made Mike and I work? What made our love so unique, so special? And when I asked her why she was asking, she said it was because she had never really truly seen a relationship that had lasted the test of time. That she had met so many people 25 years in, 30 years in, 15 years in, that called it quits, that walked away, that gave up. Her own parents divorced, and she wasn't sure it was something that was within reach. I was pondering that going into today's episode, and it made me reflect on the value of relationships, standing the test of time, because that is actually what it takes when you enter into hard times, like a diagnosis like brain cancer. My parents have been married for over 50 years. Mike's over 55. Our grandparents were all blessed to have long relationships over 40 years, 60 years plus. We had amazing role models. But there was also a key ingredient in our relationship that any relationship needs to weather the good and the bad times. Getting married is almost the easy part. It's what comes after that is hard. Because a marriage, a true partnership for life, mimics life itself. Life is chaotic. It's messy. It's out of order. There are peaks and valleys. There are highs and lows. When you fall in love with somebody, being in love and that butterfly feeling, it comes and goes. It doesn't last permanently forever because we're human beings. And as human beings, we evolve, we change, we grow. And the key is to grow with each other, even when you have differences. It is okay for you to not be exactly the same. It's okay to be different from each other. Your differences are what make you strong in a relationship. You can value the things you have in common and you can embrace the differences that you share. That's what makes a relationship unique. For Mike and I, when we got engaged, I knew that our marriage would be blessed and it would be beautiful and wonderful. And I can say that even knowing what I know now with him gone, 
He was actually the better communicator in our relationship early on. I had to work really hard to open up. He taught me and I allowed him to teach me. And that is key. I embraced my own failures and my faults. I knew where my shortcomings were. And I allowed myself to grow, to learn, to be taught. And he did the same. But outside of that, I also valued him as a human being, as a person. I knew that we had differences, that we weren't exactly the same. And we didn't need to be. He challenged me. He forced me to think in different ways than I normally was used to. And I did the same for him. We met each other in the middle. But I also saw him as a person, as an individual outside of our own relationship. And I liked who he was as a person. I valued who he was as a person. And I knew that that was going to be key for our relationship going 20 years. That's what it takes. Life is challenging. Nobody promised it was going to be easy. But in order to stand the test of time, in order to truly hold up the meaning in sickness and in health till death do us part, you have to embrace the uniqueness that each brings to the table. Be willing to challenge each other and yet also find common ground. Communicate all the time. Tell each other you love each other often. Value the individual unique ways that make you different. That bring your uniqueness to the relationship. Laugh and enjoy each other's company. Be each other's best friend and teammate. Our guests on the show today, they embrace all of that. They share those same qualities And it's what's helping them weather the hard times that they are now facing in sickness and in health. I didn't expect that to come so soon. And while I am sorely missing Mike, and I think about him often, he taught me so much. We brought so much to our relationship and to our marriage. And for that, I am so grateful. We had a wonderful life together. And it is a life that I cherished. And it taught me so many things. It made me who I am now. That kind of love truly does exist. It is there. It is real. And it can be had but it takes a lot of hard work. Diane and Nick exemplify that, and we'll hear more of their story and how their love is helping them to persist, to keep going, to persevere. They sit down with us next. We'll be right back. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against the tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, 
brain metastases, and meningiomas, gametile therapy is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gametile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gametile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gametile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for a second episode of our season three of the Game on Glio podcast. I want to welcome our guest today, Nicholas Damsky, and his wife, Diane Pathew. Nick is a retired firefighter, a compassionate and loving husband, son, and brother. His wife, Diane, is a news anchor with ABC7 in Chicago. Over two years ago, Nick was diagnosed with glioblastoma which sent shockwaves throughout his entire family. Now he and his wife, Diane, are on a mission to share their story publicly of his brain cancer journey. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us today. Hello. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Yes, thanks for having us. Let's start with, we, we know why we're here. We know why and what we're talking about. Let's go back before, before the journey of GBM began Let's start there. How long have you guys been together? What was life like before glioblastoma? Hmm, how long have we been together? I think we started. <laughs> in, I think we started dating in 2007. We met on a blind date. One of his colleagues, one of his fellow firefighters, put us together. <laughs> Let's put it this way: she 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 was on TV as an, a news anchor mm-hmm. in uh, Milwaukee. I was a firefighter in Milwaukee. Every day, I would say. Man, that chick is hot. <laughs> you got to remember, this is like 15 years ago now. So it, it was like, man, you know, it wasn't, uh, we didn't have uh, all of this uh, yeah, no Tinder and, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. all of this stuff. So it was always like, man, if I ever see her, finally, a friend of mine saw her in public. He had to approach her. And the weird thing was, is you had to give emails back then. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. So we had, we had to exchange emails, and I think within five to six days, we started emailing and we got together and oh. met for lunch, which turned to turned into dinner. Which turned into dinner yeah. because we sat there and talked. I think for almost like five hours. We did, and that was the first date, and then we've been together ever since. Yeah, yeah we've never been apart. No, since. never been apart. I love that. It's so interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine as I was preparing for our interview and our discussion today. There are so many weird date parallels between your journeys and my own. And to say that you guys met in 2007, so ironically, when you guys met in 2007 was when my husband, my late husband and I got married. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Ironically, Nick, when you were diagnosed, literally is a day before what would have been our 13th wedding anniversary two years ago. Oh, wow. So it's there's some very, very just strong parallels. And I've noticed that with certain people that I've talked to. And my friend just said that there's usually significance in numbers, which, you know, I don't know much about. But I think that's such a great story. I love how you guys met. Um, for some reason, it makes me flash back to I don't know if you ever watched The Ghost Whisperer. It was a TV show with Jennifer Love Hewitt. No. So did I. I loved that show. And for some reason, as you were discussing how you met and Nick being a firefighter, 
for some reason, I don't know why, but I flashed back to that show and how the two of them met and fell in love. I don't know why. Oh my gosh, I can't believe how much I loved that show and I completely forgot about it. When we first started, <laughs> we first started, started dating. dating. Yeah, I used to be addicted to that show. You'd have to run home because yeah. there wasn't DVRs and stuff like right. that. Oh man, we're oh. getting old. <laughs> well, I'm right there with you. So Nick, you were a firefighter. What did you love about being a fireman? First off, it's very exciting. It's all computerized now, how they used to dispatch you. But years ago, it was just, you'd get different tones for different emergencies. Mm -hmm. um, so we were all EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. You had to be at least EMT qualified to be on an ambulance, a fire engine, and a truck. Oh, wow. So we were all multi-trained. So you would... Basically go, if it was within your first response area or second response area, if another fire truck or fire engine was not around, mm -hmm. you would have to go into another area. So you always had, got to go to different areas. You got to see people at their worst you, mm -hmm. and you got to help them. But, you know, you also saw a lot of things where you were like, "Ooh, man, I hope I don't see that ever again. Sometimes it was really good because you're helping a lot of people in a single day. And some days it's very sad and depressing. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what the support system is uh, when you either talk with your own colleagues or, you know, having a good um, now wife around and you have to uh, bounce the good and bad off of them. And sometimes you're afraid to tell people what you saw because you don't want to freak people out. But at the same time, you know, this is the reality. People think it's just, mm -hmm. let's take the wet stuff and put it on the red stuff. No, there's a lot more. There's, you know, there's shootings, there's drug deals, there's all the bad deaths you can think of happen throughout a firefighter's career. There's a lot of crisis management, I would assume. I mean, being a firefighter doesn't mean that, you know, yeah, you're just putting out flames. I mean, people get hurt. There's smoke inhalation. Maybe somebody gets severely injured. Maybe there's a horrific car crash and there's massive flames or something. I mean, it seems like you really do need to be multi-trained and diverse in even being a pseudo paramedic or an EMT, as you said, going into a job like that. I mean, it's not an easy job. I know my grandfather was a firefighter and it's a heavy job. I mean, it's, it's just as intense as an EMT. It's just as intense as being a paramedic going into the hospitals all the time. I'm sure it's exhilarating, but yeah, I can only imagine that it's got to be strenuous at times. You know, everybody has different careers. I mean, um, when I first started out, I became a firefighter when I was 19. I got a terrible MRSA infection in my right leg. It was so bad they were going to cut it off. And they didn't know what to do because back then, I was the youngest person in the United States to be diagnosed with a MRSA infection. Mm -hmm. It was so bad. I mean, they, I was in the hospital. They were draining it. Finally, they just, a couple of nurses, they just wrapped my leg in plastic and just kept shooting warm water through it and basically created a skin that was so tender and soft that they could just like basically poke the infection and it would start draining out. Wow. Yeah. Cause they were going to take it all the way from basically the crotch area down the whole leg. Yep. So I was, uh, been on medication for a long time. I've always been on medication. It seems like. Wow. So it's something that unfortunately you're not unaccustomed to. Yeah. And it actually took me off the job because I need a knee replacement 
and they can't put the replacement parts in my knee because they're afraid of infection. Okay. If it gets infected, they will definitely have to take the leg off. So that's something you always had to monitor regardless, even with your job. All the time. This is interesting. And I don't mean to say interesting, but you've kind of been in this realm and in this field, medically speaking, whether as a fireman or because of previous injuries and infections. And then here we are two years ago. And what otherwise is extremely healthy individual, no issues outside of the MRSA infection that you've had to monitor and deal with, it sounds like most of your adult life, all of a sudden you have this massive seizure. Walk us through what you do know of that day. And I'm curious because it sounds like from what I know ahead of time speaking to Diane, that you might have been alone at the house when it happened, which scares me because I have a family member who has a seizure issue. And the idea of somebody being alone when something like that happens terrifies you. So who was with you? Who ended up coming to the house? Kind of walk us through that day. This was, I mean, right in the height of COVID. It was the week of Christmas in 2020. Yeah. Everything was shut down. Everybody was afraid of each other. Gyms were closed. Yeah. So Nick had built a gym, a kind of a makeshift gym in our basement. And since we couldn't go to the gym, my family couldn't go to the gym, you know, my dad and my parents are big kind of gym rats. And my dad and Nick have, at the time, had connected so much because they were both looking to, you know, to put on more muscle. And my and Nick was looking to like work out with my dad. So they what, it was like a couple months, right? That you, yeah. right, right when all the gyms closed, okay. my dad started coming over here every, pretty much every morning to work out with Nick at the same exact time every single day, like clockwork, right? Yeah, and I was just you know, uh, copying my, my physical therapy for my knees and all my surgical sites just to keep my body moving also because everything was shut down. You couldn't do anything. Couldn't even get a doctor appointment. Right. So basically, that's what happened. So my dad came knocking on the basement door, right? Well, yeah, you're going to have to take over most yeah. of this because I... I... Yeah, unfortunately, doesn't remember. But mm-hmm. so when my dad tells it, he came to the basement door. The basement was dark, which is very unusual because Nick mm-hmm. usually gets up an hour and a half ahead of time and sets up the gym. Knocking on the door, nobody was responding. I was on the anchor desk filling in and I was doing like a news brief and I saw my phone light up. Couldn't get to it t- until commercial break. I got, I picked up the phone. My dad said, hey, look, Nick's not answering the door. I think he overslept. I'm going to go home. And I said, Nick never oversleeps. There's something wrong. Stay close. Don't go too far. And my parents only live like three miles away. So he you know, got in his car, started to drive off, kind of pulled over to wait for me. I kept calling Nick. Mm-hmm. No response. Very strange for him. Texting him, no response. And now, mind you, this is happening while I'm basically in news briefs for the show, he finally calls back, doesn't say anything. I said, are you okay? He says, no. Mm-hmm. I say, do you need an ambulance? And he says, yes. And the rest is just a downward spiral. So we hang up the phone and I call my dad back. He comes back to the house. I call my sister who lives just a couple blocks away. She comes to the house. They, you know, we call an ambulance. So, you know, my family's here. They wait for the ambulance. They get inside the house well, actually, Nick somehow manages to get upstairs and answer the door. He, you don't remember that at all, right? I no clue. Nothing here. Yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah, he manages to get upstairs, unlock the door for the paramedics and everybody outside. Mm-hmm. Comes and 
sits down in the family room as he's being evaluated. Mm-hmm. I am. Um, we live about without traffic, about 25 minutes from downtown from the station. So I fly in my car. I couldn't even tell you what the drive home was like. I don't even remember. Get home. They had already transported him to the emergency room, which the hospital is not very far away from our house. Mm-hmm. And my sister said, as they wheeled him onto into the ambulance, onto the gurney, mm-hmm. he was completely conscious and awake and fine and speaking as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the hospital, he was awake. Now, mind you, again, this is COVID. They didn't let me in for the first, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes. Oh, my God. I finally got in. And that's when the on-call doctor said, we found a mass. We think it's brain cancer. I honestly did not believe it at all. I mean, I just was like, yeah, okay. Within 45 minutes. He gets there and 45 minutes later, that's what they're telling you. I mean, they were so sure of themselves. It was their initial diagnosis. And I had the opposite reaction. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. You know, uh-huh. He's fine. I, was, I don't know if it was denial, if it was you know, shock. I don't know what it was. Yeah. But we spent... The next couple of hours together, right? You're talking to the wrong person. Know, okay. Yeah, I could have been. So we, <laughs> I, was probably, I thought I was Batman. You were, you were awake and totally conscious, but we spent the next, I would say like the next hour, maybe two, mm-hmm. he was completely conscious. Mm-hmm. And then just like that, he was gone. He started fading, 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 fading. And that was it. They took him to ICU first. Mm-hmm. He lost consciousness never regained consciousness again. The doctor came out and said, now this is going, like this is throughout the day now, right? Because mm-hmm. I tend to lose her a little bit too. The doctor comes out and says, yes, it's a mass. It's a glioblastoma. And I had no idea at the time what that was. Mm-hmm. He's not bleeding from the brain. We don't think it's an emergency yet, but it could be. So I did all of the sign your life away papers. Oh, you know, wow. that was like, that took another however long Mm-hmm. I go back to the little waiting room in the ICU by myself, and I'm just crying and losing my mind, looking at glioblastoma, which is like the single worst thing you can oh, do when you're by yourself in the waiting room. And maybe 25 minutes later, he comes back out and he says, he's hemorrhaging, like we got to take him in. So they take him in, I think it was like the next day, because at this point, I'm just losing so much time. I think it was the next day. Mm-hmm. And they sent me home because it was past the hours of them allowing me to stay. I had already stayed way beyond when I was, when I was supposed to. So they kicked me out. I went home, got him a change of clothes, all that kind of stuff, waited for the doctor to call. What was supposed to be like a six hour surgery actually turned out to be a four hour surgery. So I was like thrilled. They called and said, Nick's awake. Can you come back to the hospital in about an hour? So I come back. During surgery, he had a pulmonary embolism in his lung. Oh my gosh. They said it was really touch and go. This is all within the first 24 hours. It's like the first 24 to like 36. I, I really honestly lose time. Like I have these things in my phone, but I don't even know if that was accurate because I was so, like you're a zombie at that point. And I'm sure you know. Yep. It's like you just don't even yep. just lose track of time. I finally got to see him in his own room two days later. He was intubated, unconscious, paralyzed on the right side, recovering from surgery, recovering from the embolism, recovering from the hemorrhaging. Mm-hmm. So he had this like tube thing hanging from his, the top of his head, essentially like 
A drainage. Yeah, it was a drainage tube is what they explained to me later on. And when he did wake up, it was like a subconscious. So he was like, he was like, I was talking to him and he was responding by squeezing my hands and stuff. But yeah. he doesn't any of that. So there was like another day of that. Wow. Yeah. So it was, I think, a solid two days before you actually woke up and was able to call me and we were able to speak. Does that seem right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know how many yeah, days. Yeah, I know I- it was like Christmas morning when you finally called and said, like, I'm awake. Everything's okay. Literally my first initial thought when I woke up myself looking around, I thought I got hurt at work. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, I must have been in a really bad fire. Right. Then the, this could have been me just dreaming. But the next thing I remember is somehow we ended up on a beach and uh, we were with my surgeon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> His surgeon and I were talking about him and we were talking about him and I believe the surgeon had to have been in the same room with him, right? So I think that you were hearing his voice and like yeah. putting his, you know. But you're just so out of it. That- you're so out of it. You're so yeah. out of it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and, you're, and I remember my head pounding just, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. Just, it was one of those headaches where like you could see your heartbeat every time yeah. your heart yeah. beat, you saw it. Yeah. It was very yeah. weird. So he woke up Christmas Eve we actually had a, con- a FaceTime conversation. That was how you spent Christmas. Yeah, so we were apart for Christmas. And I think I was able to see you. I think it was like the next day I came into the hospital. And that's when they told us um, we were paralyzed. That's when they told yeah. us they got all of the mass out. And when they said that, I'm like, we were elated. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's over. Like, oh, yeah, it's over. And I'm like, yeah. joke's on me. I'm like, no, it's not. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's when the sort of second phase of the journey in the hospital began. I was no longer allowed to come back because he was now able to make his own decisions. Mm -hmm. So I was kicked out for good pretty much because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And now you can kind of explain like your journey to actually get out of the hospital. Because they told Nick that he was not going to get out of the hospital for three to four months because he was going to have to rehab across the street because he was paralyzed. I wondered, yeah. Yeah. So he was going to be wheeled back and forth between rehab and his hospital room. Because at that point, you were in NICU, which yes. is a neuro. At that point, it was, well, I had a lot of delirium. Yeah. I thought she left me there. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell did I do wrong to for her to leave me in a hospital? <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was all over the place. I called a couple of my friends. I was like, what happened? How did I end up here? And they're like, what are you talking, where are you? They didn't know. No one knew. I think I was very confused myself. Mm-hmm. It didn't help because um, it was this height of the COVID. Yeah. And they wouldn't let people out of their rooms. Everybody was like masked. And it was just wild. It was just, I woke up in a whole nother world. People in these weird breathing suits and apparatuses. And I'm like, this is not a regular hospital. It's bizarre. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, they told me you're paralyzed. I remember them talking to me about negotiating with my health insurance. I had no idea what they were talking about. I almost find that a bit surprising because when Mike was diagnosed, it was before the pandemic. But when he got worse, it was during the height of the pandemic. And he was coherent throughout some of his ups and downs. But they had me by his side the whole way, just in case there was something that he didn't understand or if it was too much information that the primary caregiver was there to kind of help explain what was going on. So I just find that so surprising that they didn't allow you with him. To say that I was frustrated and for somebody that's super type A and wants to be in control of everything, 
to be told that you can't be in there to help or I couldn't even come and visit anymore because now he was awake and can make his own decisions. It was the most bizarre thing. I'd never gone through anything like that before. Now, mind you, I have done prior to Nick going into the hospital, many stories of family members having to say their final goodbyes over FaceTime because the hospitals did not let them in to be by their side. So I had already told these stories before, but when Mm -hmm. it happens to you, you're like, I cannot believe I can't be by my loved one's side during their really the the most difficult time they're ever going to go through. Right. And and the thing is, is by December of 2020, we were already going into like vaccine phases for the pandemic. We had already really gone through the crisis moment of the pandemic. Up here where I live, there were people that were passing away from certain cancers and stuff like that, that they were allowing the loved ones to come in because they were like, this is the end. We don't care what the pandemic, you know, if that's where we're at. When things are okay, I mean, when Mike was stable, he spent the last six weeks of his or five and a half weeks of his life in the hospital. But there were times where when he had a really good day or he was doing really well, I had to follow the restricted guidelines for the pandemic. And that was frustrating. It was very frustrating to leave. You know, when Nick is explaining how he thought that you left him, like he didn't know what he did wrong, that actually hit a nerve it hit a really hard part in my heart at that moment because Mike had the same thing. We were each other's glue for nearly 20 years. And when I had to leave his room because there were hour restrictions for visiting hours, he got very upset. He didn't know why I had to leave. He kept saying, no, I don't want her to go. I don't want her. And it broke me, like literally broke me. We're in Illinois, obviously, in the in Chicago area. So we had very, very strict. When everybody else across the country was lifting their mandates, mm-hmm. we didn't really lift any of ours. So Nick, how long were you actually in rehab in the hospital before you were able to get out? And that's where the story gets really Yeah, good. this is this is where it gets really, yeah. So when they told me, they said, we're negotiating right now with your insurance. You're going to be here at least three months, but we're negotiating for four because you are paralyzed on your right side. And I do get little things that come back to me. because I always used to ask you, like, when did they say, when did they say this? Mm -hmm. They said, no, you, you, uh, you lost all right side is gone. You're, you're never going to get it back. I remember talking to the nurse and uh, the coordinator for this insurance and stuff. I said, nah, that's not going to happen. I tried pulling the fast one, like tried jumping out of bed real quick. (laughs) And then I fell. Yeah, it was a whole nother deal there because I was thinking in my mind, like, I'm just going to (laughs) escape. Get me out of (laughs) here. Yeah. And then that's when they told me, they're like, you're you're paralyzed. I said, no, that's not going to happen. That's not happening. Mm -hmm. I am not paralyzed. Mm -hmm. I said, so I was in an accident. They said, no, you're not. You have brain surgery. I said, no, I didn't have brain surgery. I said, I was in a car accident then. (sighs) So it was still kind of like confusion. Yeah. And now I think about it, I'm like, yeah, maybe I needed that rehab. They do these chew tests and to make sure that you can actually swallow. Yep. Yep. I remember those. When I could eat like crackers and things like that, they said, okay, we're going to start giving you some more solid foods because I was down, I think within... 10 to 11 days, I lost like 37 pounds, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I lost so much weight. And they said, we need to start getting nutrition in you. So they were mm-hmm. feeding me through the nose, which was terrible. Uh. So when they would bring me food, what I would do is I would 
put my good arm behind my back and force myself to eat with my right side. Did you really? And I'm telling you, 85% of it ended up on the lap or the floor. But I tried like hell. Yeah. And I just kept trying. I kept trying. I kept trying. And next thing you know, my physical therapist, Mike, was like, he was just a very like, you know what? You want to try? Let's do it. Was willing to support what you wanted. Yes. Because what they do now, and I'm sure this is kind of like hospitals across the nation now, is like you have a team. Mm -hmm. You have your neuro-oncologist, you have your surgeon, you have your regular checkup doctor, you have your physical therapist, Mm -hmm. you have your nurses. They all have to check off on you. I needed a a 48-hour observation just to see if they'd let me stand. Wow. And when I stood up, the physical therapist was like, you know, he had that like, holy crap look on his face. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And he's like, do you want to go for a walk? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, let's go. And this is another thing that freaked me out because he was walking me. was just kind of like, he was amazed. And then they, like a nurse also joined in. She's like, Nick, I'm going to ask you questions while we're walking. She's like, what direction are we facing right now? And I'm looking around. I'm like, we're facing uh, West. Mm-hmm. They're like, how do you know that? Mm-hmm. I said, I don't know. And they're, I was like, am I right? She's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, if I make a right, I said, I should be looking at a, a, a Portillo's restaurant outside. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> they're like, you know where you are? And I'm like, yeah, of course I know where I am. So I kept walking. So after all that moving around, my physical therapist said, do you want to go for another walk? This was two days after I first walked. I said, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I said, something's wrong with my right side this paralysis might be coming back. I said, no, I said, I have an infection. They said, no, you don't have an infection. <sighs> and then my physical therapist looked at my buttocks. Yeah, you're right. Yep. And I had a huge infection, huge. And they said, okay, we need to get you back to your room. Yeah. And I, I forgot what medication I was on, but they had to stop the medication. And then they said, we need to do something about this infection. And I said, it's probably MRSA. And they're like, well, you have a huge history of them. Yep. We, yeah, we need to do something. So whatever this medication I was on, they couldn't put me under. Okay. They had to do the surgery while I was awake. Oh my God. I'm going to take it as a positive blessing thing because when they cut me open, mm-hmm. I have never felt pain and something to shock you, to get you moving more than that. And you were holding onto that bed on from your right side. Like. Oh, I was, yeah. So they basically gave me a bite so I could bite down on a, uh, it's like a, like a, they call it a blade, a bite blade. Yeah, it's like being back in the 1800s. Right? Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it was terrible. Oh. Just the timing. They didn't have enough time to get anesthesia in him. Like they, they couldn't the get med- it. Yeah, they couldn't. Yeah. They didn't have enough time to get, stop the medication and a lot enough time to get any anesthesia in you. So they had to do it right there. This was your introduction. You poor, you poor things. Yeah, this was during his stint at the hospital while he was quote unquote rehabbing. Yeah, and he gets this infection, and they had to cut him open while he was awake, all while dealing with the GBM. Yep. Yeah. Wow. That woke me up, and and I said, I got to get the hell out of here. Yeah. That's what I, I mean. I I probably said it out loud a couple times. That was a real wake up call, and ever since they cut me open while I was awake. Mm-hmm. I was moving. 
So, so what, what they said would have been three to four months to rehab and get out of the hospital took how many days? 17. Wow. So 17. in 17 days, he rehabbed himself out of the hospital. And it's funny that you speak of numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we switched medications, mm-hmm. I had a tumor that stabilized within 17 days. Wow, really? So it was... Yeah, the numbers come back to us too, yep. Numbers are a funny thing. I, I haven't figured them out yet. <laughs> so he came back after 17 days. He came back, finally came back home. He still had the infections. While we were trying to figure all this out, I was changing his bandages. But it's not like a traditional like hospital bandage. Right. He had a hole in his backside yeah. because they essentially took out the mass. Right. So he had a gaping hole maybe like three or four inches deep into his skin. Mm-hmm. So it had to be cleaned and stuffed with bandages and then covered. And you're talking to somebody, there's a reason I didn't go into the medical industry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just don't do well with that stuff. And here I am, face first into this hole. <laughs> it's amazing what you do for love though. I mean, you'll you dive right in. So you were in this phase of no evidence where you were doing pretty good. How long were you in that phase before the GBM came back and you guys, you, you really kind of changed courses drastically after that. What was that time frame? So you get out of the hospital and then they give you three and a half to four weeks and then you have to start radiation. Yeah, you were done yeah, with radiation yeah. and Tevadar, or at least the first round um, by February. So it, you had a reoccurrence in September, correct? Yes. So six months. At the hospital we were at, their only solution was, I believe, just another form of chemo, right? Uh, no, a vaccine. Okay. Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what my husband did. We had already established a couple of relationships with three different doctors, one at Northwestern, one at University of Chicago, and one over at Rush University. Uh-huh. Those three doctors already had Nick's full glioblastoma medical records. They knew all that he had gone through at this point. And we had really connected with Dr. Remus Lucas over at Northwestern prior to this. Can I ask before we dive into that piece of it, because this is the advocacy piece. This is the piece that is really overwhelming for a lot of people. How did you get connected to Dr. Was it because of your job, Diane? Yeah. So when I say we established these relationships with these three doctors. Mm -hmm. And you heard me say before, like I had already worked on so many health stories. I mean, this I'm going on my 12th year being back home in Chicago. So Mm -hmm. I had already worked on countless health stories with all of these hospitals in the past. Mm -hmm. So I had connections at all those hospitals. And so I had right away when he was in the hospital made all those phone calls and connections, like who do you think is the best person to talk to? So we had established, again, narrowing it down to three different doctors, three different hospitals. Of those three, like I said, we connected with Dr. Lucas. And again, that relationship was established through the, the relationship that the news had with Northwestern. We had done countless stories with them. He was the first doctor that we saw when I got out of the hospital. Right. So we had already met with him for a second opinion prior to the reoccurrence. Okay. So I went well. And Dr. Lucas says, you know, said at the time he wasn't our physician yet. He wasn't our doctor. He said, I'd like for you to at least keep me updated on your health yes. journey. Okay. So that's, so when the reoccurrence happened, we reconnected with him and shared with him the scans. And then obviously he called you, right? Yeah. Well, and we did the, um, 
Oh, we had already done. We had already gone through Tempest Labs, which Tempest, had done the yeah. Tempest. We had done. We had they had done the genetic testing. Yes. So we already had the genetic testing results. Now that's different than yeah. So that's different than okay. profiling, which we'll get into. So we had already yep. in the hospital that we were in, the emergency hospital. They had asked me, "Do you want to save his tumor for genetic testing?" And I said, "Absolutely, yes." So we had already done that and had the paperwork and sent that over mm-hmm. to all three of these doctors. So you did the genetic testing. And they had that information. You guys reconnect with Dr. Lucas over at Northwestern Medicine. Yes. And then, so explain to our listeners a little bit about, so the, pro, because this, this is a big piece of why you're here today. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. And why you're doing so unbelievably well, you guys ended up doing what's called methylation profiling. So explain to us as best you guys can from a non-medical perspective what that is and and how that has helped you with your treatment. When the reoccurrence happened and we connected with Dr. Lucas, he called Nick just a few hours later and said, please don't don't go on Avastin. I'm looking at your genetic results. And I think that we can make this work with another type of drug. So anyway, we go in, he asked us if he could take a new sample and put it through another form of testing. He didn't describe to us methylation profiling at that time. He just said another form of testing. Okay. And that's when it was later discovered after that testing, which we now can't have come to learn it's methylation profiling, that Nick had an FGFR3 TAC3 fusion. That particular gene, there were other drugs, FDA-approved drugs on the market for other cancers with the same gene mutation. So in other words, drugs that were treating lung cancer, bladder cancer, uterine cancer, had the same effect on this particular gene in those cancers. So the doctors at Northwestern said, we like to try to use those drugs on you because your gene mutation matches what this attacks. So let's start this and see what happens. So instead of the temozolomide or Avastin or anything else, they've said, we have these other drugs that attack this particular marker this gene marker, this makeup within your tumor in glioblastoma that's been identified in these other cancers, and we want to use these drugs instead. Correct. So there's a list of about eight of them that have this same kind of profile and could potentially attack the you know bad cancer cells or the you know the the bad the bad cells in the way that it would attack it in a patient with bladder cancer or whatever other cancer it serves. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like the way to describe it in layman's terms, because I needed them to do that. I didn't understand any of this. But I guess technically what methylation profiling is, is they say that pathologists essentially look at the DNA fingerprint of the tumor, right? Yes, you can look mm-hmm. at genetic testing through just genetic testing. That is not the same as the DNA fingerprint of the tumor. Mm-hmm. So the fingerprint allows them to see different markers to give them a more specific diagnosis. And this is just brain tumors. This is not, you know, all the other cancers. That's what's so amazing about methylation profiling. It's specific to brain tumors. And so we got a chance to connect with Dr. Craig Horbinski, who is the director of neuropathy or neuropathology rather at Northwestern. He took us into their lab which is called the, call it the brain bank. (laughs) And all of these tumor samples, Mm -hmm. he explained to us that this unique profiling has changed the result of 33% of those cases. So in other words, 33% of those patients were going on one route. After this profiling, we're completely on another route and are still alive. 
this is why we do the show. This is exactly why we do the show, because there is so much information out there that is being used or tested or is outside of the box thinking Yes, that truly can impact the way glioblastoma and other aggressive brain cancers are targeted and treated. And the standard of care just doesn't apply anymore. I love this information and I've been diving into it ever since you told me about it because it absolutely just has me enthralled with excitement. Being able to look up specific markers and DNA, specific fingerprints of a glioblastoma and then use a different cancer drug that can target that to keep it under control, to keep it from growing or maneuvering because glioblastoma is smart, being able to do that to give people years, to give them so much longer than they were supposed to have, this is the information we need. It's amazing. So here's, here's where it gets interesting. So when Nick decided to share his story publicly, I did a profile piece on Nick, Dr. Horbinski, and Dr. Lucas, and put it on our air, which Good Morning America later picked up, but they didn't pick up the longer piece. They did like a shorter piece. But yeah. here's what you didn't get from that shorter piece, which I think is the best part of this story. Dr. Horbinski literally said, the more tumors we profile, the higher the chance of classifying the rarity of them and the better the chance we can provide a different diagnosis. So in other words, you do not need to be a patient at Northwestern. They want your tumor sample. Mm -hmm. You can actually send in your tumor sample to Northwestern's brain bank and let them test it mm -hmm. and they will send you the results and you do not have to be a patient or even be in the state of Illinois. That's huge. And they opened it. It's, it's huge. It's huge, yeah. When I put that story out there and I, you know, we put it as, in many places possible, we had so many patients reach out and say, can we send in our stuff? And we were like, yes, please <laughs> send in your stuff. And, and Northwestern later contacted us and said, oh my gosh, we got so many people. And they opened it up at the time when we did the interview, they only had it pretty much for the United States, but they had a patient so desperate from Canada, please, please, please take my sample that they did. Mm -hmm. This is a research hospital. This is what they want. They want to research your brain tumor right. so that they can get more educated. So now, Nick, are you still doing the drugs that you started at the time that the recurrence came back? Are you still on those drugs? Yes. There's always, I think they're going to be playing around with uh, milligrams and cocktails. You know, yeah, cocktails. taking things away, adding things mm -hmm. in. A lot of these cancer drugs have interactions. Mm -hmm. So you really have to change your diet a lot, things of that nature. So every three, four months, you know, we kind of go around and play around with these medications a little bit, I would say. Where are you at now as far as, because you have you recently had an MRI, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct. Yeah. And we have another one coming up fairly soon. So go ahead and tell her about when you first started the medication and how the 17 days played yeah. out. Yeah. Well, was, uh, at first, uh, like I said, it, it was, we had to petition for these drugs. Oh, that's another thing that's Ugh. so difficult is the red tape that you have to go through to actually get these drugs. Yeah. And this is another reason why I, I want to open up to have more people be able to get a chance. You know, we mm -hmm. have the right to try act, but it needs to be easier to get to. Mm -hmm. So I went three months with no treatment whatsoever. And then the doctor started me on a different chemo, CCNU, mm -hmm. because I had growing glioblastoma and I went three months with no treatment. 
Which is insane because some people might not even make it that three months. Exactly. I mean, talk about nerve wracking for 90 days. I mean, it's just, Uh, what was it? 99 days. So we started um, these cocktails and the insurance improved another MRI. So within 17 days, the tumor stabilized. Wow. And then... Yeah, and the next scan after that, which was about a month later, there was, we actually saw shrinkage. The tumor shrank. The next month, it shrank. The, the next one, it shrank. Four straight shrank. And then it was just... Stabilized. It was stable. And that's where we are now. They say it's about a size, about the size of an eraser, maybe smaller, but it has since stabilized, and we've had a stable MRI ever since. Right? Yeah. You know, and I have radiation scarring, right. which they can't see through yet. Right. Hopefully there'll be technology yeah. soon where they're going to be able to decipher which one is tumor and which one is yeah, yeah scarring. which one's scarring, things like that. So of course, right in the spot where they really need to see, I have radiation scarring. Of course, of course, because that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. So right now we're in the stable category, which as you said, we do not like to say the word remission. That is not what this is. Mm-hmm. If it's not even no evidence of a disease, it's stabilization, which is right. entirely different. As you know, it's a different category. So that's where we like to tell people we are in the stable category. Which is amazing. Yeah. It's truly, truly amazing. And there are there are three classifications. There's no evidence, which my husband was actually in for six months. There's stabilization and then there's recurrence or growth. There is no remission phase uh, with any type of brain cancer, but specifically with glioblastoma, which is the most aggressive. So now you are in this this stable phase. You are two years out, over two years out from diagnosis. Yeah. Obviously, the medications have, you know, they had a little bit of a toll, you know, these new medications. I know there were some side effects. Yes. But you've remained so positive and so strong. How do you do that? I mean, how are you maintaining your emotional well-being on top of this huge, enormous mountain that you're climbing? Uh, Well, I look at it one way and I have to be positive about it no matter what. Mm -hmm. I am the type of person when they say you can't, I even do this to my wife. When she says you can't do that, I'm like, I'm going to do it. I don't mean to be a jerk about it, but it's only for good reasons that I'm going to do it. Same with doing these podcasts and everything. I want to do this. We need to get this word out. Mm -hmm. You know what? I'm not saying you're going to send in your tumor and there's going to be a treatment or there's going to be a good thing for you, but there's hope. And if we can give people hope, that is, I mean, a whole nother thing that a lot of people in this situation right now do not have. It's powerful. And I think that it's important to stress that by sending in, by having places like this brain bank, these labs that can do this type of profiling, we're also able to collect data Yes. to measure glioblastoma like we do with the BRCA genes and breast cancer exactly. and all of these mm-hmm. other cancers. Glioblastoma never had that chance before. And now we can say, okay, we can at least identify fingerprints so we can figure out how it acts so that we can find better ways to target it so that we can give people a chance until we can get some of these other clinical trials and vaccines to the stage that they need to be at. So it's powerful. What you say is so unbelievably necessary to have hope because hope is the one thing that we all hang our hat on. It's the one thing that we have to hold on to. It keeps us going. Absolutely. It keeps you and you know, it gives you something to look forward to that not many people know about. I think there's only what five of these six 
How many these hospitals that do this? Yeah, six right now across the country. Yes. Okay. I think that Northwestern is the only one in the, I think Iowa does it, but in our area, Northwestern's the only one. So nothing in Indiana, nothing in Michigan, nothing in Wisconsin. Okay. So yeah, six hospitals across the country. And obviously you two have each other and family to support, friends to support. The love between you is is evident. I mean, you can hear it. And obviously that gives both of you guys strength. Diane, as a caregiver and a spouse, walking this journey alongside of Nick is arduous at best. It is daunting and it is scary for both of you. How are you taking care of yourself while also helping Nick take care of himself? You know, that's a good question. And uh, people have asked me that before, you know, what am I doing for myself? And I really have a hard time answering that because I don't know. Because right now, this journey is the most important journey for both of us that we're ever going to be on. Mm -hmm. When he does well, I'm doing well. That's sort of my therapy, if you will. Mm -hmm. You're not the first person to ask, but I don't know if I've ever given a clear answer because it's simply just so difficult to think beyond right now. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to take this disease, as you know, one day at a time, one MRI at a time, one blood draw at a time. And you just never know what's lurking around the corner. So I think like enjoying every possible moment together when we can mm-hmm. is how I stay sane and positive alongside with him because I'm not the most positive person. I'm going to be honest. And he knows that too. I'm just not. I'm a very, you know, in my job, you see a lot of things that make you yes. <laughs> kind of And so I'm a very realistic person and you throw certain numbers at me and I I just take it very literally and I'm tapping into a different part of me to stay positive and connect with patients. And I think that's helped both of us, but Mm -hmm. that's part of the kind of self-care process is helping other people Mm -hmm. when they're so desperate for somebody to listen to them. That's kind of what kept me on the train tracks because otherwise it would have derailed a long time ago, honestly. Is it safe to say that each of you has found an inner strength that you never knew you had because of this journey? I think that we both knew we were strong. That was never a question because we have both been through certain things in our adult lives that have made us very strong separately and together. But this is a different kind of strength. Mm -hmm. This is the type of strength that you can't, you can't explain to others unless they've been through it. You know, everybody wants to ask you, questions about how you're doing and how you're feeling. You can't explain what scan anxiety is to anyone else who's never gone through it. You can't explain what it's like to fight for medication that could possibly keep you alive to anyone that hasn't been through it. So it's a different kind of strength. It's a different level of strength. And anyone that, you know, has either gone through the cancer journey with someone or gone through it themselves, they're the only ones that know what this is like. Mm -hmm. It is the fight of your life. Yep. And the strength that you find to fight this is unlike anything else. Yeah, it's digging deeper than you ever thought possible. It's kind of like that movie Journey to the End of the Earth or Journey to the Earth's End or something like that, where you kind of find another level. Like you think that you've got the core of who you are, and then this happens, and all of a sudden you're digging deeper than you even thought possible. Yeah. You know, I tell a lot of people I talk to, you know, you have to stay positive. You have to stay in that frame of mind. Even if you're having the worst day on earth, you have to find something positive it because you go down a hole of just negativity mm-hmm. and it just gets worse in there. Yeah. So you just have to keep fighting. Don't ever give up. I don't want anybody to ever give up. I mean, there are more and more 
people looking into this cancer more than ever. Yeah. We need to keep that train going because if they stop that train, they stop the funding, they stop the research. We have to keep talking about it. We have to, you know, almost like a a little kid going, man, I really (laughs) wish I had that candy until you finally give in and just give me candy. So be quiet. Yeah. So you just have to keep going. We're already seeing it. I mean, we're already on the cusp. My husband passed away two years ago this year. It was October 2020. And there are clinical trials and vaccines that are on the brink of being FDA approved that are in phase three stages, phase two B stages, the methylation. I mean, all of the stuff that wasn't even around two years ago. I mean, there were things that just weren't even available. There's this surge. We are getting there. And I think in the next couple of years, we are going to see kind of a, a mass entrance of different options and treatments. And I think it's going to open up more doors. We have to stay in the fight. And to piggyback, that is something we learned on this journey as well. So when we told Nick's story, we met the president of the American Brain Tumor Association here in Chicago. Now we had met him prior at another event, but we wanted to reconnect with him for this story. Mm -hmm. And when we did, he announced right then and there on our story, on our air, that the American Brain Tumor Association was celebrating 50 years and they were going to start a massive fundraiser. They are pledging to raise $50 million for their 50th year. Yeah. Wow. Which was just like amazing. Yeah. Here we are. You guys are on this journey. We're entering Brain Cancer Awareness Month. We've highlighted you guys to really help kick off the awareness going into this. As we've talked, and Diane and I have shot emails back and forth to each other for quite a while, and I've been following your journey and your story, and I will say that I think about you guys. Every patient and caregiver I speak to that I have had a chance to talk to personally and be in touch with, I always stay in touch with, and I pray for them constantly because I know that we are just meeting more and more people that just have this strength that you guys have, and it's such an amazing story to really uplift everybody else who's on this journey. For the two of you, what's one thing that you guys say to each other that keeps you guys both going that maybe nobody else knows? (laughs) Um, We always say to each other, uh, we didn't come this far just to make it this far. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Whenever we're both down, we're like, nope, this is not it. We got to keep going. We didn't fight this hard. We didn't work this hard just to make it here. We got a lot more to go. Another thing too was all the things they said that we weren't going to be able to do. Yeah. You know, oh, you're not going to walk again. You're not. Uh, yeah. After I started walking, well, we said we want to go uh, on a vacation. Yeah. Your blood's never going to level out. And oh, okay, I'll find a way. Yeah. We were taking a vacation, and what? Three months later. Yeah. We didn't come this far just to say, no, you know what? We yeah, we, we gave it a good yeah. shot. Good no. try. <laughs> yeah. We have too, we have too much time. We have yeah. too much money vested in this too. Yeah sit back and just let it all just fall between our fingertips. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not to say that we're oblivious of what this is or can be, because we're not. We understand we're super realistic people. We know what a beast this is, but we also know the power of the mind and we know the power of positivity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it sounds kind of corny and yep. maybe people won't jive with it, but it's what gets us out of bed every morning and keeps us going. The latest treatment right now with uh, standard of care, yeah. they're giving Prozac now. They're mixing in and they found out that when they put people with glioblastoma on Prozac, they're in a better mood and the brain is working better and they're living longer. 
It's amazing the power of positivity. Yes. There is a definite brain body connection. There is a brain digestive system connection. Those two components alone make up the majority of how our body fights off so many things. So it cannot be stressed enough that the power of positivity, the power of hope, and staying uplifted and staying strong and being able to walk through these tough challenges and traumas, it goes a long way. You guys are a perfect example of that. I can't stress it enough. And I am so grateful that you guys have been willing to, to be so open and to share so much of your journey and your story with so many because it really does help. It helps everybody else. And this isn't just a national thing. This isn't something that just happens in the U.S. And I can't highlight that enough. I have met people from Ireland, from Peru, from Germany, from Singapore, who have all been touched by brain cancer. This is a global issue. And glioblastoma, there's no boundaries. There's no borders. There's no ethnicity divide. This is something that affects pediatrics, young adults. I mean, let's call it what it is. You guys are not that old. My husband was not that old. This affects young adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More so than anything else, to be honest. We definitely hear from a lot of people that... Outside the U.S. too. Yeah. yeah. Well, not only that, but I mean, the age yeah. range is just... Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It's, it sounds like it's happening to more and more people. Maybe it's just because maybe we're so enthralled in it that we just see so many more yeah, people. Maybe. It just seems like it's the numbers are getting bigger, but the awareness is staying the same. And so I think that with this podcast and with you know, stories on social media being shared and things like that. I mean, that's how we're going to get funding like some of these other cancers have is by sharing our stories and talking to each yeah. other and, yep. and helping one another. And, and the more exposure, the better. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful to both of you for being on and for sharing your story. It's a beautiful story. Thank you. And I'm so grateful that you guys were willing to share this. See, if you could see us, that, that made us both <laughs> smile. That's the power of positivity. Yeah. And, you know, this is going to get us through the next couple of days going, look how excited we made, you know, someone. And mm -hmm. this is what we need. This is our this is our mission. And, you know, we had to take a, a break from uh, social media because yeah. yeah. some people are really messing up some of the words People are claiming that we found the cure. Yeah, and then we're in remission. I hate, I hate that word remission, and I know people really want to hang on to that word. Yeah. Yeah. You can't use it in this case, and it's difficult to explain to others. But um, I need to tell you, Shannon, that we're so thankful for you. I mean, when Nick was in the hospital and you began to share your story on social media, I started following you right away. You just oh, probably you never realized it. I didn't. I, yeah, I started following you right away because I was so – enthralled with Mike's story and it was such a beautiful story to tell and and then when you shared so much it was like very although you know it was a sad ending it was just such a beautiful story to hear and so I thank you for even opening up and sharing you and your husband's journey because had it not been for you you know a lot of people would be in a different position now yeah. and you know, I learned a lot from just following you at the beginning of Nick's journey and what you guys went through. So as much good as we're doing sharing our story, you're doing more by starting this and continuing this and staying connected with the people that you talk to. That screams volumes about you as well, especially after your husband's passing, that you still want to stay connected and still want to share stories. I mean, that's an incredible thing to do 
that a lot of people simply can't or won't do because it's just too hard. Well, I appreciate that. Um, it means the world to me. Yeah, and we're so sorry for your loss. And, and you know, his, his death is not in vain. I mean, he is leaving such a mark on so many people <laughs> that he doesn't even know. You know what I mean? It's incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible thing. It's amazing. Even though I lost him, the gift I have received since is an amazing one. Being able to do this kind of work and to be in this fight alongside all of you is not something I will ever walk away from. This has been my purpose. This is the gift that I was given from the love that he and I shared. And I take solace and comfort in that. And it's allowed me to meet amazing people like you. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. Well, we thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful to have had you guys on today. If anybody wants to continue to watch their journey and see the progress that Nick and Diane share, share with our listeners where they can find you, how they can kind of follow along in your journey. So we have been trying to do our very best by putting all of the scan days and the results on Instagram and then on Facebook as well on my page, which is Diane Pathew. And then when Nick, because he's not super social media savvy, but when he remembers, he will put it on his page as well. But we basically will share what that day is like, that uh, scan day, which Mm -hmm. we have coming up very soon, and we'll share the results. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how we've been sharing the journey alongside of people who are interested in knowing. Well, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, I will have their information up on the bio page on the website as this goes live. And I appreciate so much your time today and sharing so much of your story with us. To all of our listeners, we will be right back. A proud episode sponsor for the Game on Glio podcast, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York has helped millions of members since 1936 lead healthier lives. As a community-based not-for-profit health plan, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield invests millions of dollars each year to strengthen and enrich the health and quality of life in Western New York. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield provides a wide variety of health and wellness initiatives throughout our community all year long. For more information or questions on our free fitness classes and farmers markets, contact us at communityrelations at highmark.com. This episode was brought to you by Mimivax LLC, developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at mimivax.com. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. Like what you hear? Share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio podcast, Facebook at Game on Glio, or visit our website or YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.